It's Tuesday, November the 9th, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. We're previewing the new film about Princess Diana called Spencer, which opened on Friday. The lead actress has been tipped for an Oscar. But our royal editor-at-large, Richard Kay, is not so sure. We're also talking about the fact tens of thousands of care home staff will probably quit when compulsory vaccine rules come into force on Thursday. The shocking video captured by a hunt saboteur of a huntswoman kicking and slapping a horse in the face. But first, more trouble on the second jobs front, as the former Attorney-General apparently earned more than a million pounds in the past year, including four weeks in the tax haven of the Virgin Islands. All right for some. The government's facing even more controversy over MPs with second jobs, lucrative second jobs, after the revelation the former Attorney-General Geoffrey Cox earned more than £1 million over the past year, in addition to his MP's salary. Cox worked in the Virgin Islands, a tax haven, for around a month, voting remotely from 4,000 miles away, which he was able to do under the lockdown rules. I'm joined now by Robert Palmer, who's the Executive Director of Tax Justice UK. Robert, you have to laugh, really. How many times do we hear Chance of the Exchequer get up at the dispatch box at budget time and say, we're going to close down all these tax loopholes? And here we have a former member of the government, the government's former legal officer, the former Attorney General, Geoffrey Cox, in a tax haven, earning uh, hundreds of thousands of pounds for legal work. You're right, it is an absolutely gobsmacking story. Um, This is a person who was responsible for a lot of the UK government's legal affairs, and he is currently being a, or he was a very highly paid lawyer, defending the government of the British Virgin Islands against accusations of corruption. Um, So I think this raises lots of questions around uh, which side a politician is on when it comes to thinking around uh, tackling corruption, tax avoidance. But also, is it right for our elected representatives to be paid so much money uh, to represent other governments in these types of hearings? So I think uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty unusual situation uh, and says quite a lot about how some MPs behave. Now, we obviously, we don't know the detail of, of um, Geoffrey Cox's tax affairs. But if, you're, if he was working in a tax haven for a month representing the, the, the government there, do we assume he would be taxed at whatever the marginal rate is in the Virgin Islands? I mean, that's quite difficult to say, as you say, without understanding his exact tax affairs. And um, sometimes people who work abroad get to pay lower levels of tax because they're taxed in the country that they're based in. But for me, the bigger question here is you have you know, a very senior MP who is a former minister, who is a former legal officer for the government, uh, out representing another government who's accused of corruption uh, and is spending lots of time in this big inquiry defending defending the, the Prime Minister of the British Virgin Islands. And I think it also is a bit of an insight into the way in which some of these tax havens work. You know, they're often pretty badly run places as well as being places where dirty money swirls around. And why is it, I mean, apart from the, the, the crass political misjudgment by Geoffrey Cox, although he's been earning a lot of money on the side for a very long time, I don't think he's spoken in the House of Commons for 18 months, but why is it so difficult for governments, not just a, this Conservative government, but I, Gordon Brown used to say it when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, to get to grips with these tax havens? 
So I think it is difficult because um, there are lots of sort of clever lawyers like Jeffrey Cox out there defending the status quo. Um, and uh, politically, there's quite a lot of pressure not to do very much, you know, from from, from various factions. I mean, what I would say to, to, to sort of give a positive note to this story is since the financial crisis in 2008, we have seen some action. You know, we've seen more transparency measures introduced. We've seen more crackdowns from governments on tax dodging and tax evasion. Now, have we done enough? Definitely not. But I think we've seen over the last 10 years that public anger around tax dodging can slowly translate into changes of the rules, more transparency, more powers for tax authorities to go after those who aren't paying their fair share. Uh, so there's a lot further to lot further to go, but I think we have seen some progress. And I'm just looking on Geoffrey Cox. Um, the Register of Financial Interests, which, of course, every MP has to complete, shows he received, during the time he was uh, in the uh, British Virgin Islands, £157,000 for 140 hours work. Well, that's, so that's over, a, that's over £1,000 an hour. But what, again, what we don't know is, is that pre-tax or after-tax? I mean, who knows exactly what tax he will have paid on that. That's between, uh, you know, Geoffrey Cox and his accountants, I imagine. Mm. Um, but it is a huge amount of money that this person, this MP, is earning to provide these legal services. And I do think it raises questions about his priorities as a elected representative. You know, he represents a, a constituency in Devon. I wonder what his constituencies, constituents feel about him spending a lot of time outside of the UK, you know, representing a foreign government in court and perhaps not doing what is meant to be his full-time job, which is being a politician and representing the interests of his constituents of West Devon fascinating isn't it because yes i think we'll probably be trying to find out exactly what his constituents do think about that that's robert palmer who is the executive director of tax justice uk visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to the andrew pierce show for free in full along with our other podcasts and our video series remember to tell your Alexa speaker to play daily mail news the video frankly is shocking it was captured by a hunt saboteur and it shows a huntswoman kicking and slapping a horse in the face. The Hunt's woman has now been identified as a primary school teacher and Cottesmore Pony Club leader. The RSPCA is investigating. I'm joined by Tony Tyler, who's the Deputy Chief Executive and Head of UK Welfare at World Horse Welfare. Um, Tony, we're all, we love animals in this country. I guess people do it all around the world. But it's always particularly shocking to see such a gorgeous animals that horse being just brutalized by this woman absolutely i mean mean, what is the important thing to consider here is horses as a whole need respectful treatment and this this wasn't the case in this situation now we think the reason the horse was being attacked by this woman was because it had tried to run into the road but um how does punching and kicking a horse teach you any road sense Well, I I don't want to comment too much on this individual situation because, as you say, the RSPCA are investigating and and there may be an effect on a case should they decide to go forward with it. But horses at times do need correcting. However, this would not be the right way to do it. Um, I think that any sort of correction that a horse made 
horse is made to a horse needs to be proportionate. And a very famous riding master once said that to learn to control a horse, you first need to learn to control your emotions. And unfortunately, there are lots of situations where people lose control of their emotions and take it out on the horse. And that's never acceptable. And take me into the psyche of a horse, if you can, Tony. How distressed would a horse be? Let's take this woman out of the equation. But how distressed would a horse be if it is slapped and kicked? Well, it depends a lot on the individual horse. Some horses, like some people, are more nervous than others. But being slapped and kicked is not an acceptable way to give an aid to a horse. And for those that don't know, by an aid, I I mean something that generates a response that you want out of the horse. So for riding, a squeeze of the legs will ask the horse to step forward. Um, A slap or a kick um, in, in an inappropriate place will normally cause the horse to back off and sometimes to react quite violently. Right. How, in your view, what is the proper way to discipline a horse? Well, I think that if you train a horse correctly in the first place and you have a progressive system of training, then the the discipline um, is something that happens fairly rarely because the horses learn to respond to your commands. But if, for example, you were riding a horse and it tried to run off with you down the road or to jump away from a situation and you became and it became a dangerous situation then you may need to apply the the legs or the rein more strongly than you would normally do but it but but again that's not a case of slapping the animal in a place where you wouldn't normally apply reins uh, uh, sorry yeah. apply an aid lots of people Many of people listening to this podcast who read the mail won't have horses, uh, Tony. Um, but the um, and they'll be wondering how widespread is um, mistreatment of horses. Oh, I think I think that it's it's rare to see um, harsh mistreatment of horses, and and very often it's through a lack of education. Those that are are educated well do treat their horses well, and indeed. Almost every horse owner that I know has a deep love of their horse and does the utmost to respect it. Unfortunately, there are situations across the board with horses where that respect is lost and abuse can occur. Right. And what's your advice to people listening to this? If um, they've got a horse, it's a difficult horse maybe, or it's a horse that um, does try to bolt for the road, what's the best way forward? Well, I think... If ever you have a problem with a horse, what you need to do is go back to your basic training, whether that be leading the horse in hand or whether it be riding the horse, rather than trying to um, forcefully push through a situation. If you go back to the basics of training and you develop the, the rapport that you have with the horse, then you can have a harmonious relationship. How interesting. That's Tony Tyler. He's Deputy Chief Executive and Head of UK Welfare at the organisation World Horse Welfare. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to our podcast, videos, opinion pieces and much more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. OK, it's Richard Kay now, so I'm going to go grab him. OK. 
Tens of thousands of care home staff will probably quit their jobs on Thursday when compulsory vaccine rules come into force. As many as 60,000 care home staff are not double jabbed, which is about 10% of the workforce. The government says the law is necessary for them to be double jabbed to protect the elderly and vulnerable staff, and they've had months of warning. I'm joined now by Mike Padgham, chairman of the independent care group um, of care homes. Mike, I hear what they say about care homes, but we know the Secretary of State for Health, Sajid Javid, today in the Commons has been spelling out that the same rules will not apply to the NHS until the end of March next year. Why one rule for one and one rule for the other, do you think? Well, that's what I'd like to know, basically. My own feeling is that uh, the health service has some very powerful unions, and I don't think that they would take it lying down. Um, The Secretary of State said that uh, he could see the pressure the NHS was going to be under this winter. So I would ask him in return, if the NHS is under pressure, so is social care, why can't our deadline be moved to match the NHS? Because it doesn't make sense, in my view, to have two different deadlines. Um, Social care needs to support the health service. If we're not there, the health service just backs up. So... It's problems for the future. We're trying to be constructive. Why not wait a few more months so we can help the government, help the NHS and help the public? Do you suspect some of the staff who will quit, Mike, will probably go and take jobs in the NHS because, of course, they won't have to be jabbed until the end of March? No, and that's why it's such an odd policy in a way. Um, We need more staff in social care because before the pandemic, there were many, many vacancies, 100,000 to be exact. Um, And it's bizarre, isn't it? You you could be in a care home, be admitted to hospital and treated by the same staff who are not vaccinated with the staff who are looking after you in a care home. Maybe we're going for a hip replacement or something. So it does seem very odd. I just think it's more logical to apply both the deadlines. If it has to come, let's wait till we get through the winter because we want to help. But we, it seems our hands are tied by the government. And we know why the, the government is not doing it in the NHS yet, because it fears there'll be a mass exodus of staff who refuse to be double jabbed. And we know yes. about 10% are not jabbed. They don't seem to seem to be so concerned if there's a mass exodus from care homes. Now, it puzzles me completely. It just shows a total, in my view, a total lack of understanding in government of what social care does. It's a key part of helping the health service. If we're not there, the health service fails. That's the bizarre issue, is um, why why let all those staff go? Because there are more staff in in social care than in the health service, 1.6 million. So losing 10% of those, 160,000 staff, more than 100,000 short, is is, beggars belief. the hospital need to discharge people in the community. If we're not there, they can't help those people who might get COVID. So I just thought it's still time for the government to rethink it and just say, look, in the best interest, we think you're right. The experts are right. Let's do it together. What of, though, Mike, those people who are listening to this podcast, I think, hang on, my mum, my dad, maybe my uncle, aunt, an elderly relative, elderly friend is in a care home. They're very vulnerable. I don't want people looking after them unless they've been double jabbed. Yeah, I can understand that argument, of course. What I would say is that um, the policy has so many holes in it. Um, The issue is that you don't have to be vaccinated if you're a visitor into a care home. You don't have to be vaccinated if you live in a care home. Um, There are many holes in the system. Now, I think there's a risk of not having enough staff to give care as well, which is as risky as having unvaccinated staff. And I might just add, not that I'm an expert in COVID-19, all I would say is I believe you can still pass COVID-19 on even when you've been double jabbed. So it's not yeah. completely eliminated. I just think the risk of not enough staff is worse than the risk of unvaccinated, in my opinion. Yeah, and just finally, Matt, how is it going to affect your care homes? Well, we've been quite fortunate from our perspective. We've only got one member of staff that we will lose. The others we are redeploying. But there are many homes in this country that won't have uh, the same advantages. And it might find that they cannot offer the services that the local authorities want 
and some homes might have to close, which could mean elderly people have to move somewhere where there's nowhere to go, no room in hospital, no room in their own homes. So I think the government's giving itself a problem. I just can't understand why they just don't think waiting a few more months is a sensible thing to do. All right, that's Mike Padgham, who's chairman of the Independent Care Group. Thanks so much. Time now for a regular City Update with Hugo Duncan, who's caused Deputy Business Editor at the Daily Mail. Now, Hugo, this has been bubbling away on the business pages for some time. LV, Liverpool, Victoria, one of our oldest insurance companies. Is it going to fall into the hands of demoned uh, private uh, equity firms? Well, that is certainly um, the plan that is in place. Indeed, the board of LV um, has agreed some time ago um, to, to sell out to Bain Capital, an American private equity company, for £530 million. Now, LV, um, it dates back to, to 1843. It's nearly 180 years old, and, and it looks after the, the pensions and life insurance of of over one million members in fact these members own it because it is or at least at the moment is and has been um, throughout its history a mutual which means that it is owned by his members mm. but the board believe that the best thing for the future um, of LV would be to sell it to American private equity that would mean that they own the company rather than its members of course the members have to vote on this and the vote is that there is basically a month left before the, the vote closes now if members do vote this deal through then lv will indeed fall into the hands of bain capital but it is down to members and there is every chance that they will vote against this not least because the demutualization of this historic firm is going to result in a payout to members of just a hundred pounds each there is not a great deal well, of incentive what's for them in to it for them to deal. do that and the worry uh, Hugo is um, the a private equity firm won't give a hoot about the members it'll just be profits 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 and if they have to cut costs cut costs that's what they do well I- indeed and, and, and the you know it isn't run for profit per se anymore obviously it has to be run effectively to mm. look after its members interests but the members interests are at the heart of um, what a mutual does is that going to be the case under private equity ownership only time will tell but there are certainly people out there who are rather um concerned um about this and suspicious um about the motives and of course how long do private equity intend to own it for i mean as i say it's been around for 178 years mutually owned by its members what are private equity going to do in two years three years four years time are they going to flip it just sell it onto someone mm. else with total um disregard for um the rights of the of, of the members then who, who of course will simply be customers they will have yeah. no, no ownership or, or, do, or stake do, just, in just finally hugo the board who recom- are recommending this how much money do the members of the board stand to make from this deal well as they uh, regularly point out from the actual deal itself andrew th- they don't get anything right okay but uh, there's always a but but as a private equity em- as a private employee of private equity rather than looking after the in- the interests of uh, uh, of of the members certainly the chief executive mark hartigan s- stands to possibly get a better deal than he is on today because mm. at the moment he is paid by this historic british mutual if this deal goes through, he'll be being paid by um, American private equity, who tend to be rather more generous mm. than um, other um, sectors uh, 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 of the business world. And what is this poor, 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 poorly paid executive earning at the moment? We well, he, he got 1.2 million Did last he? year, so he's not, yeah. he, he's not exactly yeah. he's not exactly um, struggling. He's not on the poverty line, is he? He's not. And this company, of course, was set up um, in the middle of the 19th century in Liverpool so that 
um, the poor families of Liverpool could um, save money and um, have enough money, get enough money together to um, to bury um, their loved ones. Oh, the founders of that company would be spinning in their graves, wouldn't they? Indeed. Well, let's hope they they, 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 they vote to reject it because um, it seems another great name disappearing. Uh, that's Hugo Duncan, Deputy Business Editor at the Daily Mail. Twilight actress Kristen Stewart plays Diana, Princess of Wales, in the film Spencer, which opened on Friday and has already been tipped as Oscar material. But the Daily Mail's editor-at-large, Richard Kaye, says the film's credibility is stretched from the very first scene. It shows Diana driving a Porsche. He joins her now. She didn't have one, Richard, did she? She didn't have a Porsche, but she had a German car, but it was a Mercedes. Why couldn't they have got the car right? Does it matter, do you think, those sort of details? Well, I think it only matters because of this, Andrew. They are trying to present Mm. uh, Diana in as accurate a way as possible. They've got so many other things right. The voice, the tilt of her head, the clothes she wears. So they want us to buy into this. That this is the Diana, the, 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 the Diana we all know. Yeah. But then they sort of invent things and change things in the narrative. And I think it's very confusing. It's, it's to my mind, very similar to the, to the uh, trick, if you like, that the producers of The Crown have pulled yes. by insisting that their, their version is an accurate one because they got so many of the details right when it isn't. And, of course, they have portrayed the princess pretty much, as you say, the batty craziness of the princess. They've, they've got her as really a bit mad. They've got her as a bit mad. They've got the royal family as, as this really brutal, cold clan um, who, who, who really were deeply unpleasant to her. And I'm not sure it's accurate on either front. Look, we know Diana had difficulties with, with the royal family and, and they with her. But I think they're doing a disservice to the memory of the princess. It's also, of course, the, the whole point of this film, Richard, it covers three days of the Christmas gathering at Sandingham in 1991 when that, this film says she took the decision to end her marriage. Well, that's not true either. No, she made no decision at Christmas 1991. I mean, uh, they staggered on through 1992. Everyone knows that it was the publication of the Andrew Morton yeah. book. Uh, in the summer of 92, you and I both reported on it, we Andrew, that sort of led to, to the breakup. But even then, there were still attempts at a, a rapprochement. Prince Philip was writing to Diana in the summer of 92, try give it another go. Yeah. Princess Diana was also uh, very tall. Uh, Kristen Stewart is five foot five. I know. Couldn't they found a taller <laughs> actress? <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was going to be hard for her to to pull it off. I think because of the way the angles are shot, it doesn't. You don't really notice that she's not the, as tall as the princess was. But nonetheless, they could have found a taller actor. Of course, they could. Um, she's. But you also say um, while she's got some of the style, nothing of the grace or sense of humour. Now you knew her better than any journalist on the planet. She could. She she had a great sense of humour. It's an utterly gloomy film. I mean, maybe that was the edit, the the, the uh, director's decision to make it like that. I mean, it's it's sort of gothic in its in it, in its presentation, but it does seem they've missed a trick. I mean, the princess used humour a great deal in mm. her private life and in her public work to diffuse situations, and it's a shame they they portray her as as terminally gloomy. Mm. Um, I mean, you could argue she had quite a lot to be gloomy about because the marriage was in a very bad place. It was, and at look, that time. And, and there is no doubt that Diana was extremely difficult for Prince Charles, for mm. other members of the royal family. But was the difficulty put on her by the others, so to speak, yeah. or did she put it all on them? 
Uh, and now she says I'm playing Diana I'm not her well that's clear isn't it because you say the voice is too soft and while she does do the head tilt that we all knew she, she does it too often she does it too often there's too much she's so hunched up it's as though she's got no neck at times when she's walking along I mean she looks like she's she's channeling the princess constantly what royals are in there in the film as well Richard who are portrayed as cold and haughty Charles presumably Ch- Charles of course um Played by the uh, the man who was the enemy of of uh, Poldark, if anyone remembers the Poldark series, yeah. War Legan. I mean, he oh, plays yes. him as a very cold fish, the right. actor, yeah. and the Queen. Uh, but the others uh, have no part at all. I mean, Prince Philip is reduced to a sort of a, a nodding dog. Uh, Andrew and Fergie, who uh, particularly were were very close to Diana that Christmas of 1991, because the two sisters-in-law were sort of plotting their the ends of their going marriages the same way. Both, yeah. you know they have no speaking parts at all none of the others are seen and you just see some factotums William and Harry well yeah William of course William yeah. and Harry William and Harry actually play quite large roles particularly William uh, and they give William far too much responsibility he was a boy of nine at that time yeah and um uh, and, and then and uh, uh, just back to the Porsche where we started Richard behind the wheel of a Porsche getting lost in the Norfolk back roads she was brought up in Norfolk oh, she was. I mean the first 14 years of her life was spent <laughs> on the Sandringham estate I mean she knew like the back of her hand do you think she'll get an Oscar well, she's a good actress. There's no doubt about it. I mean, if they can separate the film and the nonsense of the film uh, from her acting portrayal, then yes, she might. And we have to remember the Americans choose a lot of this. Gillian Anson won all those awards for playing Mrs. Thatcher yeah. in The Crown. She was terrible. She was terrible. And she also played her at the wrong period in her life. She you know. did. Um, yeah. She, so, yeah, we know that that's the way Hollywood works. I'm afraid we do. I don't think I'm going to bother with this film. No, I, I think people who were fans of Diana's Wolf, I had a, a text from a couple of fans this morning saying they think it's going to be too upsetting. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I just, yeah, um, uh, interesting. I wonder what she, I wonder what William and Harry make of it. Well, I don't think either of them will see William definitely will make a point of not seeing it. Harry, possibly he might. Um, because of, he's detached over I'm in Los vic- Angeles. And he's also a victim, uh, yeah. apparently. Yeah. yeah. So, well, his wife certainly yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, that, they want to portray Diana as a victim. Fascinating. The film is called Spencer. It's out now. And um, let us know what you think. That's Richard Kay, who is, of course, our editor at large. That's all we've got time for today for the latest from the Daily Mail. Download the Mail Plus app every weekday at 5pm. You can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'm going to be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Mm-hmm.